Hello and welcome to the Practical Applications of Insanity Podcast. I am your host, Gentry Fuller. Here is my friend, Matt. Just leave it at that. My friend, Matt. And we're just going to leave it at that. Today, we are currently discussing time travel, but the topic of discussion can wander to literally anything. Right now, we are currently discussing time loops and whether or not the standard model of physics will allow for them. actually a good way to phrase that question will the standard model allow for them because the math allows for them the theories allow for them but does reality allow for them I mean to be fair Einstein thought that black holes couldn't possibly exist his theory predicted them but he saw them as something too extreme to exist in nature. But nature wouldn't allow something like that. I'd say quasars are more intense than... Well, they Qua- both... Quasars are black holes. Quasars are powered by black holes. It's just the accretion disk around a black hole that's glowing super brightly. Yeah, you walked into a conversation at a half-leg. Welcome back, finally. Yep, I heard quasars are a black hole, basically. Yeah. By the way, you're also currently being recorded on my podcast. Say hi to the listeners. Oh, hey. <laughs> if it can well, even hear you, but... It's not live. Uh, this will uh, well, all be I didn't ending. think it was going to be. Mm. No, we, we were talking about the fact that somebody made a closed time loop where you could put a single electron in a quadruple helix of lasers and it would spiral to the end and then go back to the beginning and go back to the end again and then go back to the beginning. Yeah, I think we've had this conversation once or twice too. Quite possibly. Do I remember right? So anyway, because of general relativity, you can travel at close to the speed of light and the actual experience of time that you receive at going at that speed is much slower relative to everything else but exactly the same to yourself so theoretically traveling in time to the future is possible i just don't think technically we are traveling in time to the future yeah at every moment at a rate of one second per second. Exactly, at a rate of one second per second, traveling through time towards the future. Always. You can slow down that rate, but... It's always going to be minuscule and still relative to everything else. Until you approach ridiculously close to the speed of light. Or get close to a black hole, because gravitational distortion also uh, space time. Space is time. Well, the... They're not the same thing, but they're very deeply connected. Both affected by closer the same thing? Pretty much. Like, space and time, it's... You can't separate space from time. Space-time is the medium that reality exists in. It's not space and time, it's space-time. Which is a weird way to describe time, because at the quantum level, time almost doesn't exist there's symmetries 
that should exist at the very fundamental level. Charge, parity, and time. Which means the laws of physics should work the same, A, if you switch all of the charges in a, in a particle. So like take an, ad, take an antimatter particle, negative protons and positrons. Okay, the laws of physics work the same for those. Uh, parity is if you reverse the spin of each particle, which is not like quantum particles aren't physically spinning walls, but they have angular momentum as if they were, and that's what their spin refers to. If you reverse the spin of everything, the laws of physics should work the same, and they do, except in one case. So that means somewhere the time symmetry has to be violated to cancel out that violation of parity symmetry and make the whole thing symmetrical. The problem is, we don't know of anything yet that violates time symmetry. The laws of physics seem to work perfectly when going backwards. But if that's the case, then that means parity symmetry is the only one violated, and CPT symmetry, which must hold true, is then violated, which means the standard model completely falls apart. And the standard model is not a grand unified theory. It's doesn't... Which means the laws of physics cannot work the same going backwards as they do forwards. Which is the one thing that might prevent reality from allowing time travel. But, then again, Einstein said black holes were too extreme to exist, even though his theory predicted them. He's just like, sure, the math predicts them, but nature's not going to allow that. Well, nature does allow that, in fact. And ever since then, we start questioning. So, basically the math is always right, okay? So then the math predicts some pretty weird shit. Like time travel. But nature can't allow that. Well, nature already allows certain things, like black holes, so... Why the hell not? And gravitational lensing, and... Yeah, but Einstein thought gravitational lensing would... He thought that he thought that did, in fact, happen in nature. He just didn't think we would ever have the technology to be able to measure it. There were a couple other things his theory predicted, too, that he believed were true, but he thought we would never be able to measure. Like, uh... Oh, I can't even remember what it's called. But it's an absolutely minuscule effect when two pulsars are orbiting each other. So pulsars being like lighthouses, basically, spinning neutron stars with two beacons coming out of each pole. And they spin perfectly regularly, more regularly than our atomic clocks. There's work on trying to use pulsars as our timekeepers. 
instead of cesium atoms because cesium atoms are accurate in 1 times 10 to the negative ninth decimal places pulsars are like a thousand times more accurate in their regular timing but when two pulsars are orbiting each other their gravity since they're neutron stars should produce the tiniest distortion in the space around them and at a certain point in their orbits we should see their beams warp a little bit and recently we were actually able to measure that it was a shift of like two trillionth of an arc second that's pretty short that's distance not that's angular distance so like in this in 360 degrees you have 360 arc minutes basically is what you can divide it into each arc minute one one degree is divided into arc seconds so every arc second is one sixtieth of a degree of rotation of variance in the sky and we we detected a shift of two trillionths of an arc second in distortion with two orbiting pulsars and Einstein's theory predicted two trillionths of an arc second of distortion he just thought that's non-zero but we're never going to be able to measure something that tiny it's like not even possible and we did so pretty much everything so far that the math has shown us has turned out to be true and extremely accurate which is why at this point we don't hunt for things in particle accelerators we hunt for things in math and when we find something we use a particle accelerator to prove it or not There's only been one thing that we found in particle accelerators that the math didn't predict. And currently it's still up for debate if it's even actually a thing. And if it is a thing, we need to rewrite the entire standard model because there's nowhere it fits. And we don't know what it does. It's called the X17 particle. And it looks like a force-carrying particle, but it's huge. It's like a billion times the mass of a gluon, which holds the strong force. And it doesn't last for more than a billionth of a second before it decays. And like there's no math that's missing a particle there's no theory that's looking for a particle like 
nothing has predicted this thing's existence so it doesn't fit anywhere. Especially if it's a force-carrying particle. Because that would mean a fifth fundamental force. And it's not a graviton. It's too big to be a graviton. Gravitons would be roughly 142 mega electron volts. This thing was 170 plus mega electron volts. Which is the unit we use to describe the mass of subatomic particles because their mass and their energy are equivalent at that point. It's actually called a mass energy unit because they are basically mass or pure energy, whichever way you want to look at it, and it works out exactly the same. So we call their mass however much energy it takes to excite that quantum field that it's in to produce that particle. However much energy it takes to change that quantum field and make the particle appear, that's the particle's mass, basically. Hmm. And, and I... an electron is one electron volt. So it's the base unit by all, by which all is measured. Yeah. Have you ever heard the theory that every... The one electron universe? Yeah. That every electron is the same, just tunneling around everywhere, constantly, basically? I don't know if the theory has any merit, and I think it was more of a kind of theoretical idea. It, it was, I mean, no, it was a thought experiment. And it was like it was originally meant to to be kind of a, a ridiculous, outrageous thought experiment, but then it like actually made sense, and then could be mathematically shown to possibly be true. But you have to use a certain interpretation of quantum mechanics, and that's the big question. It's kind of like kind of like my theory, if this is the way something works then this would be the result but everything hinges on is that the way things work or not that's kind of when you apply Occam's razor the theory that has the fewest assumptions is the most likely to be true I mean it's not a hard and fast rule it's just a probabilistic exactly thing. that and that's why the one electron universe doesn't hold up to others because it requires some more assumptions which you know definitely makes a difference but sometimes the more complicated answer does turn out to be true and then we have to explain that Like, black holes. My only issue with black holes is the singularity at the center. It's an infinite. The math goes to infinity there. All of our laws of physics fall apart. But that's what the math says should happen 
And according to our math, when we use infinites with it, we get exactly what we see in nature, which implies that the infinity is real. But even stars are finite and... Exactly! Nature doesn't work with infinities. There's not infinity of anything. Except when our math uses infinities, it produces observed results. But even black holes can dissipate due to Hawking radiation, so... Yes, and at every point, there's still an infinity. Infinity minus one is still infinity until you get to zero. That's the problem with infinity. That's why infinity is a problem. Like other places that infinity has popped up before? Quantum mechanics. So, every particle has a probability of being in a certain place when you observe it. Right? It's not in a set place. And it has a probability of being in any energy state of its possible energy states when you observe it. So, you have to then add up the probabilities of each different energy state of where it's going to be to get its probability curve. Well, then each probability of it being in each certain energy level contributes a certain amount of total energy to that system. But if it can be in energy, any energy level and can interact in infinite different ways with another particle, then you have infinite probability curves that each contribute an infinitesimal amount of energy to the overall system, which therefore means every particle contributes infinite energy to every system. Well, that just falls apart. That just, that does not work. That's not how things work. If every particle contributed infinite energy, there would be infinite times infinite energy at all points in the entire universe. Uh, that's just, that's not possible. We're not made of infinite exploding energy. I mean, one gram of an antimatter in contact with what regular matter would... It produces a finite amount of energy, a measurable amount of energy. But that would go to imply, since energy equals mass times the speed of light squared, that could work in reverse. That ener uh, mass is energy and energy is mass. Yes. And if everything had infinite energy, it would have infinite mass. I'm not saying it's infinite energy, just that even no, a small amount of matter has... But that's where infinities have come up before in, like, quantum mechanics and stuff. And nature doesn't work in infinities. I'm not saying like, it's not finite. So, like, but what about black holes? 
supposedly it's an infinitely dense point. Exactly. But nature doesn't work in infinities. Nature began with an infinity. Uh, Did it? I mean, assuming uh, the universe began with a uh, a big bang, an infinitely dense point of infinite energy and heat that expanded. But then how did infinity become finite? If it started with infinite heat, then even as much as it's cooled down, even as much as particles have dissipated, there would still be infinity left. Nature always tends towards entropy. Energy is always lost. And but, it... but infinity minus anything is still infinity. That's, that's the nature of infinity. That's how infinity works. That's the definition of infinity. It's not a set number. Infinity is defined as, the, as one more than the highest number. There's so, no real highest number. Because you can always go one more. That's why infinity is a problem. Infinity minus infinity is infinity. Infinity times infinity. Well, that's infinity because it's the new highest number plus one. Infinity times two. And well, it's, that's still infinity. Well, infinity times infinity would be infinity squared. No, it'd be infinity. Well, because theoretically, infinity, yeah, but... That's the definition of infinity. That's why nature doesn't work with infinity. Because if nature allowed infinity, there would still be infinite of everything. I mean, beyond the observable universe, there's presumably something. And it could just be that that's as far as space has expanded and that might not even exist or so the fact that it's finite at this point means it had to have started from something finite because if it started from infinity no matter how big or small it still is it would still be infinity and contain infinity the problem with infinity infinity does not work in in math it just causes problems. There's a saying that if your math <clears throat> predicts an infinity, your math is wrong. Or we don't understand what we're talking about. But you can still do math with infinity. It just... Becomes... The answer is always infinity. Which is the problem. Which is why you don't want infinity in your math. How we resolved the infinities in quantum mechanics? We literally went, well, that's just not possible. So, what if we stop it from being infinity by putting a cutoff on the probabilities we include? We're not going to include every single possible infinitesimally small energy state. We're going to include the top 
of possible energy states. And anything with a lower probability than 0.0001%, we just are going to pretend doesn't exist. We now have a finite number to calculate. And it gives us pretty dang close to the right answer. By what variance? Uh, it depends on what calculation, but there are some numbers that predicted versus observed is like 1 in 10 to the negative 12th decimal places before the, the digit changes. So, finite. Yeah. Extremely small, but finite. Some numbers we get are extremely large, but finite. So, like, the problem then is it must have started from something finite. Even if it's a Google light years across the whole universe, that's still finite. It's a ridiculously unnecessarily huge amount, but it's finite. If black holes had infinite gravity, then even though the gravitational strength drop-off is the square of the distance, it doesn't matter how far away you are from a black hole, you would still be experiencing infinite gravity. Because infinity divided by two any number of times is still infinity. And before you hit the event horizon, theoretically, you can still escape. Exactly, which means they don't project infinite gravity over infinite distances. Means the entire universe would just be one giant black hole. Literally everything is subject to the square cube ratio. And Except infinity. What? Server shutting down. Is it maintenance? Most likely. Yeah, it seems like it. Rip. It is Monday night. Tuesday morning. <clears throat> Monday night right now still. Well, technically I guess, yeah, but... We got, we got into it about that. Positively. Yeah. It's just, I mean, that's my problem with black holes. The math says they should have infinities in them, and the math accurately matches what we observe, but if they really had infinities, the universe would be one giant black hole. And if it truly is infinite, who, who knows? I mean, it's probably not a gateway into another universe, since... Anything that goes in is immediately shredded up and then shat out in two jets. Well, no, whatever's absorbed in isn't spit out in the jets. The jets are stuff that doesn't make it in. 
spinning around the outside of it that gets spun so fast and so energetically that it manages to get that almost to the speed of light that it needs to escape from just outside the event horizon. Because the magnetic field of the black hole is twisted into those spirals. Hmm. So the plasma just follows the magnetic field. So that's just what was able to escape. Mm -hmm. Those are the lucky ones that made it out. Only a small portion of what's orbiting a black hole actually gets sucked in. Most of it gets spun up too fast and manages to get ejected in those jets. I guess it would be difficult because if you were coming at any sort of angle that wasn't straight, you would basically start orbiting. Uh-huh. And then as soon, the closer and closer you get to the event horizon, the faster and faster and faster you go. And depending on what kind of a particle you are, you may only need to get to 90% the speed of light to escape. 95% the speed of light to escape. If you're, you know, an electron, you only need to make it to about 80% the speed of light to escape. And you just follow that magnetic field out. That's what we see mostly in the jets. It's giant clouds of electrons. That's why we can see the jets, because it's, it's called electron synchrotron radiation. When you spin an electron inside a magnetic field, starts to produce x-rays because it goes faster and faster inside that magnetic field. Depending on the strength of those x-rays, we can determine how fast it was spinning, so we can determine how strong the magnetic field was that made it spin that fast, so we can determine what size the black hole was that made a magnetic field that strong. Has the test been successfully confirmed? Mm-hmm. Because we have multiple different ways to determine the mass of a black hole. And all of them pretty much agree. For the most part. That's not insignificant. Then the one black hole we finally took a picture of is exactly what we expected to see. We knew what angle the jet was coming out at, so we knew what angle we were looking at this black hole at. So it was spinning basically like this at an angle, because we saw the jet coming out like this. So we know it's spinning like this, so if it's spinning like this, we should see a blue shifting of light at the top edge going over the top because it's accelerating matter away from us or we should see a, a red shift there because it's accelerating matter away from us increasing the wavelength of light like a Doppler shift and at the bottom it's pushing it toward us so we should see a blue shift in higher frequencies and then we should see the glow of the accretion disk as a disk around it and that is literally exactly what we saw. We looked at it in x-rays, and at the top you see this drop-off 
this fading away of x-rays and then this bright bunching up of x-rays at the bottom and then this faint band of x-rays around the sides exactly what we thought it was going to look like we had to use a telescope the size of the earth to take that picture so is it quark gluon plasma like what's a black hole made of just infinitely dense molecular soup that's the problem nothing can exist with in infinite density it's when infinite density is when neutrons collapse in on themselves into zero space inside neutron stars there's quark gluon plasma but inside a black hole that has gravitationally stuck together so it's metallic quark gluon plasma or just infinite crystallized uh, according to our our theories currently it's even denser than that it takes up zero space no matter how much of it you have so it's so dense that space doesn't allow it to be more than nothing yeah but logically that doesn't make sense and also it still definitely has a size well, the black hole part that we see is just where its gravity is strong enough to hold in light. Out to what distance can light not escape? At the center, there's a singularity, which is the problem. Black holes also have different sizes, so even if infinite, infinities were involved, for them to be of different sizes or power density... Infinity would be infinity. There aren't different versions of infinity. Except the problem is that the size of the object seemingly goes down to zero so when you take any amount of mass and divide it by zero you get an infinity anything divided by zero is infinity except sometimes it's not dividing by zero it's a proportional amount equal to its mass like if you compress the earth down to the size of a golf ball it will become a black hole a neutron star 
for reference, is Mount Everest compressed into a sugar cube. Pure neutrons. Atoms with no space between them. No, no electrons, no giant empty gaps. Just a solid nucleus. That's how dense the nucleus of an atom is. If you took all the fluff from out between the atoms of Mount Everest, it would be the size of a sugar cube. That's how much actual material there is. And those are neutron stars. An entire star the size of our sun, 12 kilometers across. The size of New York City. And if you give that a little squeeze and push it over the edge, it goes to infinity. Because according to our laws of physics, it should just keep collapsing and collapsing down to zero. And anything divided by zero is now infinity. Except it has a very measurable gravitational pull. And a very measurable mass and a very measurable size. The other problem is light should theoretically take infinite energy to be held back because light is infinite energy. It is pure energy. So therefore it should take infinite energy to hold back light. And it does hold back light. Which suggests it has infinite energy. Because how we understand it is like, think of space-time like a tablecloth, right? You put a bowling ball in the middle, you get that depression. That's how orbits work. That's why things curve. Basically, a black hole completely rips through it and it starts space water falling from the event horizon in so, constantly being dragged down and at the event horizon the space itself is falling into the black hole faster than the speed of light so therefore even light trying to swim upstream is being pulled backwards faster than it moves forwards. And we call it the event horizon because in order to record an event, to say that an event happened, we have to be able to observe it. Anything beyond the event horizon is unobservable. No event can cross that horizon. Because once an event crosses that horizon, it ceases to exist. That's why we call it the event horizon. It's where time, it's where we can no longer observe. So that means the accretion disk and jets are things that were just outside the event horizon but got shredded up by the rapid rotation. Exactly, that they're moving too fast to be a cohesive anything anymore. It's just raw shredded particles being flung around. On the outer edges, you can still detect, like, molecules and stuff. But get a little further in, those get shredded. Get further in, atoms get shredded. 
get real close. Protons and neutrons get shredded. And then once it falls in, doesn't matter what it is. That's the other problem. The information paradox. Information can't go back in time. Information cannot be destroyed. Quantum information cannot be destroyed. You break something down, if you find the subatomic, the quarks and gluons, you have the information to rebuild that thing. So therefore, like stars, we know what went into a star because of what comes out of it. The information is not lost. But in a black hole, no matter what goes in, it turns into Hawking radiation. And loses all information about what went in. There's no difference between the black hole eating a random gas cloud, a star, a planet, or another black hole. It turns into the same thing. Which yep. is a problem. The fact that energy is being converted into radiation still means that there is a transaction happening. Which... Yes, but we can't tell what it is. Based on the output, we should be able to tell what the input was. Based on the type of radiation that comes out, we should be able to tell if it ate a star or a planet or another black hole. But we can't. We can't tell how much gas, how many stars, how many other random things that black hole is made of. We can only guess how much total stuff is there. That's the problem. Because then it evaporates away into Hawking radiation and becomes all the same. We can't tell what went in. It supposedly deletes information. That's kind of terrifying ex existentially. Yeah. It's kind of terrifying physically too. But... I mean, even though our galaxy has a supermassive black hole at the center of it, and we're currently rotating around it, and there's numerous other ones scattered throughout the uh, universe, it, we'll never, literally never encounter one, and we are certainly unlikely to, say, produce one in a particle accelerator. I mean, we have produced them in particle accelerators. They're I mean, just so I mean, short-lived and tiny that it doesn't even matter. They're made of, like... A single particle which evaporates away instantaneously due to Hawking radiation. That's cool. But in, in the Large Hadron Collider, yeah, sometimes you, you can see these little tiny points in, in some of their collisions where it looks like everything just... There's, there's just a hole. And some of the energies. But that's also how we've discovered some particles too. Because we can see the Hawking radiation from those individual tiny black holes. And we can add that into the energy of the collision. And figure out, oh, 
That was a tiny little black hole decaying. We don't actually look at the particles that are produced in collisions and particle accelerators. All we see are photons that hit the detectors. Then we go, okay, so these photons came in at this angle. We trace them back to right here, combine their energies. What do we get? Oh, does that match? Here's the energy we get. Does that match a known particle? Uh, oh, yep. That matches, that matches a known particle right here. That was a muon. All right. So then we add this, and they recreate the entire crash scene and add up the energies until you get to how much energy we had put into that collision. We know the total energy. And every time we piece together another particle, we just subtract that from the total energy. And then we try and figure out, are we missing any? Is there any missing energy? that's not accounted for. And that's how we find particles. But math usually predicts where we're going to find a particle. It usually tells us, hey, look around 142 mega electron volts, somewhere between 140 and 145 mega electron volts. And you should find a particle with these decay properties. So then we look. Do we have, do we find those decay properties? Yep. Do they add up to the expected energy? Yep. Well, we can confidently say we found that particle that was predicted. But it's even harder to put everything back together and see if there's anything missing. Because each collision produces like terabytes of data. So that's why that, that one particle that's unaccounted for, that's why that's never really happened before. Just it, and it's still unconfirmed if it was an error or not. So if you were to say try to quantify atoms as units of information, what would one say hydrogen atom be? If you were say trying to simulate the universe, well, that's so. It's like at its base, it's a proton and an electron. An electron is a probability cloud around it. That electron could be anywhere in that cloud around it until we look at it. At which point, we basically snap a picture of it. Think of the electron being everywhere, but like oscillating between every single possible position it could be in. And then we take a picture. In that snapshot, we're gonna see, we're gonna see it in one place because we took a snapshot of it. Pretty much, which is how the how collapsing wave function works. Cuz an electron is technically a subatomic particle. It's a quantum particle. 
proton, though, is made of six subatomic particles. Three quarks and three gluons holding them together. One, two up quarks and one down quark. Quarks have specific properties like color charge, where it's not charge because charge involves whole units, right? There's plus one and minus one, but they have thirds of charge. So like an up quark is positive two-thirds, and a down quark is negative one-thirds. Two-thirds plus two-thirds minus one-third. Three-thirds. So you get a plus one charge in a proton. But then those quarks also have angular momentum, aka spin, but they're not actually spinning. And that tells them how that tells all of them how to group up and how the proton is going to behave, what spin the proton is going to have. And depending on the spin of the proton is how many neutrons it's going to bind with and how many other protons, which determines how many electrons are going to show up in the cloud around it, which determines what kind of an atom you have. So technically, each proton is made up of 12 bits of information. And each neutron is 12 bits of information. Two down quarks, one up quark, or two up, two down and one up. Two thirds, minus one third, minus one third. Zero thirds, neutral charge. and then the three gluons that hold them together, and then the spin of each of those particles. But technically, just calling it a quark involves two different pieces of information. It's charge and it's spin. And you can only measure one of those at any given time. We have to measure them separately to be able to figure out what they were. So then, technically, each individual particle has multiple bits of information attached to it. So, to try and code that, you would have to start all the way down there. Not to mention, you would have to set the background rules that determine what does spin do? What does it mean for a particle to have spin one-half? What laws determine what that does? You would have to write that as the background program, space-time, which would tell designations how to behave. You would have to write the laws that say, if a particle has spin one-half, it does this, 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 and this. If a particle has charge of this, it does this, 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 and this. Then you would have to define all of the different particles and all of their different properties. Which we have done in a computer simulation. 
took a thousand computers linked together and six months of calculating. But it pretty much produced the universe that we see. Just wrote in all the background laws and then wrote in what each particle does. And said, so, run the simulation. If these are the rules, and these are the characters within the rules, how do they behave? It came out where it's pretty, pretty fascinating. But if it's only like 24 bits, say, for a single atom of information. Is for a single particle. For a single particle. Like a, or a single proton. For a proton of information. That would still have to extrapolate terabytes of information from a single particle's interaction? Mm-hmm. Damn. Because that one particle then interacts with all the particles around it in multiple ways. And as you add more particles, the complexity goes up and up. still being defined by Brownian motion as well as the gravity and I guess a magnetic field that is being generated as the but stars. But there is technically no such thing. Brownian motion is due to how the laws of quantum mechanics work so that's already implied. Note how quickly everything fades right after this. That's reionization. And there's kind of the beginnings of accretion disks. All of these, all of these are galaxies. These are superclusters. That's a cluster. So each of these are individual galaxies. So do superclusters still behave like that? In like that scale? Mm-hmm. So what Every is... Every supercluster has an anchor point. So what is the Milky Way rotating around? We are the anchor point. Of, well, we're the anchor of our cluster. Our supercluster, the anchor point, I believe, is M87, where we took a picture of the black hole. Because it's about 10,000 times the mass of the Milky Way. So that's the largest black hole that we are aware of. Second largest. Second largest. So the anchor point for the supercluster 
is still the second largest that we're aware of. Mm -hmm. The other one is the anchor point for its own supercluster. See, this is one galaxy. This is what the stars forming inside it look like. So is the center one star or just one accumulating disk or is that a spiral galaxy at the center and then the rest is like a cloud yeah this is this is the spiral galaxy forming at the center of this gigantic dust cloud and the implication being if this was say a space picture that would be the visible part and the rest would still be rotating or would the dust cloud have already accreted and formed into stars no we've we've seen We've seen dust clouds like this around galaxies. You can see it in sometimes, not really in visible light, it's almost too dim for visible light. So do you have to view it via occlusion from light from other stars? Uh, that's how we saw some of the cosmic web, the space in between galaxies, the, the filaments that connect all galaxies in the universe. We saw them with some light from a pulsar that shone through them. Uh, but it was in UV light because everything is ionized in those in that gas. So when light hits it, it produces UV radiation. And then some of it gets stretched into visible light if it's far enough. But the easiest way to see it is in visible. Oh, this is a really cool one. This is just after the Big Bang. This is a third of the observable universe, 33 billion light years across. These strands, that's the cosmic web. I heard an interesting theory that at all scales, from neurons to the structure of the universe, it's all mycelial, or vaguely mycelial. Mm-hmm. You can see everything, everything stays connected at the largest scales. Like you can see it really well in that one. Really well in this one. 
And I'm not saying the universe is based on a fungus, but I'm saying that these patterns arise in nature. For a reason. That's what everything naturally falls into. It's a web-like structure. supercluster is being pulled towards the Linnaeacaea supercluster. And then there's something past that that's even pulling that towards it that's the great attractor. That's a galaxy like M87 at its supercluster. That's pretty cool. These pockets of reionized gas that start showing up. They added in dark matter and a whole bunch of other stuff. And it. So it's being factored for now? Mm hmm. It pretty much. You know? Cool. Makes sense. It's pretty much what we observe on the, the giant scales. See, when you get close to everything, you can barely see it. And then we can see all these giant voids. We're in the middle of a void. Our cluster is pretty much the only cluster around for a very long ways. Given the distances involved in space travel, and the fact that the universe is always constantly expanding. <laughs> is it even possible that within the timeline of... Well, the universe, is, the last proton won't decay for like a trillion years, right? <coughs> so... Much more than that. That was just my spitballing idea. But there's still going to be stars <laughs> left in a trillion years. <coughs> red dwarfs, but those have like 12 trillion year lifespans. Duly noted. They do nuclear fusion at literally the slowest rate possible. They're like the bare minimum of a star. They don't even produce visible light most of the time. They're really bright in infrared, though. 
an invisible light, you would kind of just see some, like, faint, dying ember against the background of space. Have but, you ever read the last question? Mm -mm. Uh, it's a little uh, short story by Isaac Asimov that kind of delves into this idea. And they, over uh, the course of artificial intelligence, it was posed a question. Given the state of entropy in the universe, what can be done to slow or stop it? And at every point, the computer responded, insufficient data for meaningful answer. And this happened at multiple points throughout this AI's evolution, and it got progressively more complex and advanced. Uh, at one point, when it had finally reached its full iteration, it was a full planet-sized computer. And it was posed this question, because everything was fading out. The world, the universe, the last star. And it thought to itself, and decided it would start again. And then the universe began again, re-simulated in its computer. And the idea is that that's what the cycle has always been. So kind of a loop. Or Neat a idea. Or a simulation. <laughs> I don't I actually mean, believe in the simulation theory, but... I mean, when you, when you think about it, though, if at some point a civilization develops the ability to simulate its history, then it stands to reason that there would be more simulations, many, many more, than the one that is doing a simulation. <coughs> Therefore, <coughs> given that at some point an intelligent civilization will attempt to simulate its history, it is far more likely we are one of the simulations. The problem with that idea is it's going to take a certain amount of computational processing to run the simulation. And if it takes more energy to run a universe than it would take to, uh, that that universe had, it would take as much energy to simulate that universe because it requires processing. That's the thing, though. It doesn't... Information in a three-dimensional space, the maximum amount of information allowed inside that three-dimensional space can be defined as the surface area of that sphere. Of, of space. Which means you cannot contain more information inside the volume of space than you can contain on its surface area. And volume is always significantly larger than surface area. Meaning, to simulate a given volume of space, you need a much smaller surface area of computation. Therefore, to simulate the universe would actually only take a black hole about twice as big as the largest one we've ever seen. Because a black hole is defined as infinite information density also, meaning every possible pixel of its surface area 
is packed with as much information as possible. To simulate the amount of information inside the universe would only take about a hundred billion mass black hundred billion solar mass black hole. That would have a large enough surface area that would contain the amount of information equivalent to the known universe. I mean, theoretically, there could have been civilizations that ascended to a higher plane of existence, being purely energy beings, beings or some shit. I mean, it's like, that's why, considering that it's very possible, provided that at some point, a civilization wants to simulate how it came to be. If that happens we are more likely to be one of those simulations. However, it is entirely possible nobody ever wants to simulate the past. But considering how much of the past we are trying to simulate, it would make sense that at some point a sufficiently advanced civilization would attempt to simulate everything up to that point. If that ever happens, it's more likely we are one of those. Because there will be far more simulations than there will be the one real world. Statistics. If there's 99 simulations and one real world, we have a 1% chance of being that world. And as interesting as a concept as it is, and as much as probability might seem to theoretically factor into it, it does involve assumptions. But at the subatomic level, everything is simply information. Information about how a combined larger space is supposed to behave. At its base, a computer is just nothing but information about how a larger screen is supposed to behave. Why is space pixelated? Why doesn't infinities ever work? Why are the laws so fine-tuned and perfect? Why does math explain everything? One idea is that it, this is the only version of reality that could exist, or at least only versions with these rules persisted long enough that a life was able to evolve to observe it. Exactly. But what if we're a simulation in that timeline? <coughs> At a certain point, then the people we evolve into are still going to be part of this timeline where intelligence evolved in order to observe it. <coughs> Therefore, 
if intelligence evolved to observe it, they would necessarily be simulating a world in which intelligence evolves to observe it. So therefore it would necessarily have the same rules as the real world. And this is not to dismiss the, argu dismiss the argument, but at a certain point, regardless of whether or not we live in a simulation, we don't get to choose that <coughs> yeah, we're in this version of reality. That's, that's the, the real counter-argument to it is, well, does it matter? <coughs> if we're in a simulation, are we ever going to be able to know or do anything about it? No. So, what's the point? Which, I mean, I, I get that's That is fair. Personally, I just like to know. I don't care if it doesn't matter. I just want to know. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. But it doesn't. It doesn't matter. If we're in a simulation, what what difference does it make? I mean, and if you're an NPC in a video game, you don't get to get out of it. Exactly, and that's the whole problem with actually finding out that we are a simulation. That gives everyone excuse to literally not make decisions and just go, well, if we're a simulation, this is how things are going to go. And that becomes the, the argument for every action. All, all hope gets lost, all sense of responsibility and achievement gets lost. Because everyone is now just on the whole destiny thing. Because you can't change anything. Heaven's problematic enough. Bleeding. Religion collapses. Like, actually finding out that we are in an uncontrollable simulation literally just causes, like, anarchy and the collapse of society. So even if we did figure out it was true, we probably shouldn't tell anyone. That could be problematic. I mean... You don't want the people in the Matrix to realize you, they're in the Matrix. Exactly. If you just suddenly tell everybody you don't have free will, it kind of collapses the entirety of civilized humanity. That's kind of what happened with in the Matrix. When they tried to make it heaven, a pleasant place for humans... They grew suspicious because not, no one could ever have it that good. Which there's also the problem of learned helplessness if you do that, and then the, the mouse paradise that went so horribly wrong. You cannot give a creature absolute paradise. It turns horrible. <laughs> One thing was that they <coughs> didn't control population, right? <coughs> and they just had infinite food. <coughs> they didn't so, breed like crazy. <coughs> population actually declined. Because there were the beautiful ones, the females, that all the males wanted. Out of the, like, hunt 
20 different homes, little cubby homes in there for mice. The rest were, they didn't even get a home, but six, six of the beautiful ones controlled them all. And they ended up becoming such useless breeding machines that they couldn't even teach their offspring how to survive. And they lost the ability to survive because they became so content and lazy and helpless that they didn't even know what to do anymore. And the rest of the population was always so outcast. And it basically turned into a horror show where they wiped themselves out because of paradise. Which means you have to have some kind of bullshit in there that teaches things. Otherwise, everything falls apart. Society forgets how to do anything. Forgets how to survive. Forgets how to function. At some point, they didn't even want to breed anymore. They just wanted to eat. I'm still a proponent of universal basic income. Well, yeah, but there, there's not... You can't just give everyone paradise, though. Not paradise, but maybe a st higher standard of living. Be nice. <coughs> so I kind of want to burst the topic, but I'm also afraid because one of our political discussions kind of came to a head once. <sighs> I just tend to leave politics alone. That's fair. Especially when people disagree. I think it's okay to disagree. <coughs> <coughs> Belief should not be a foundation for friendship. Pol politic no. <laughs> Politics just end up... <coughs> being people, divisive. People are very attached to their ideas of politics. And it's kind of like an important topic is how our country is run and shit. And people are very passionate. <coughs> usually and typically if you disagree nothing is going to change a person's mind <coughs> that's kind of what being human is not everyone is going to agree about everything and not everyone knows and and politics is one of those things that you're not going to change their mind on so it's just avoid it I've actually had very good political uh, discussions with a friend of mine who is a avid <coughs> Trump supporter. <coughs> it's a confusing dichotomy for me, but I don't let it be an obstacle to our friendship. See, it's just as confusing to me how people can hate him so much. And not even an obstacle, just a, a disagreement, but a difference of opinion, even. 
it's just like certain things you can kind of come to an understanding on, but that's typically one of those things that if you're on opposite sides of a political fence, it's a deeply ingrained philosophy. And that's it's fair. not going to. It's really hard and I would definitely... to understand <clears throat> the other side. It's like me and my mom with religion. I can't understand her views on religion. I just don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. She doesn't understand how I can't believe it. It's just one of those things. Yeah. Basically, all of my religious family has the same arrogant, oh, you'll understand when you're older kind of mentality. The reason I don't is because I got old enough to understand. <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty much. I'm like, look, mother, you're older than me, yes, but we grew up in vastly different worlds. Okay? I know a lot of things that you don't. I know a lot of secrets about... Catholic religion that would make your skin crawl. Money? Oh, just the history of it. You know how many straight lies are in the Bible? Like, completely twisted historical events. So, <laughs> how much the Bible actually correlates to actual history. So far, there's like a third of it we found. So, <clears throat> pretty much everything we found about two-thirds of the Bible does reference true events. But nine times out of ten, it tells it wrong. Sounds about right. Like King Herod. King Herod was really not a terrible guy. Completely skips over the fact that he rebuilt Jerusalem after it was destroyed. Was the founder of the Third Temple. Rebuilt the Jewish faith from the ground up. Brought the entire area to ep economic prosperity. And then there's no evidence that he even sent anyone to kill Jesus. There's evidence that he told people to watch and see if he, you know, stepped up to try and take his throne. But not to go kill him. And all the Bible says was, yeah, is that jackass that sent people to kill, kill Jesus because he was scared he was going to take his throne because of some dumb prophecy? It's like, um, <clears throat> yeah, that's not really how that happened. And you missed the reason he was called Herod the Great. 
just ignored him. He's the reason your religion still exists. But, no, just ignore him. Hold that. <clears throat> I was thinking that pretty loudly. That's, that's my problem. It's so much of it was manufactured that it's hard to believe the rest. I know what you mean. And it's kind of annoying that atheists have to build up a framework for all of the mo uh, common arguments that <coughs> are used. I, agnostic or... I actually prefer to identify as secular humans. I tend to just tell people I believe in being a good person. That's kind of what <coughs> secular humanism is. Morality from a objective and rational standpoint. <coughs> Also, uh, preference utilitarianism. <coughs> whatever, whatever satisfies the preferences of the most people is what is good. It's a really good line from a Tech Nine song. It's, I took took all the religions, put them in a pot, boiled them until all the bullshit ran off. All that was left was love. That's pretty much it. When you boil off all the bullshit of all the religions, they're all just trying to <coughs> tell you to be a good person. <coughs> and that's a good moral to have. Yeah, they smack. Both are equally good. <clears throat> I sometimes still say goddamn without having any belief in an entity such as that. Because it has more smack than science damn or whatever. Sometimes I still say that too, but one of my favorites is God bless America. Here we go. There's a little bit of misdirection there. That's a little bit patriotic, so that works. <laughs> Throws people off, too. I was just like, God damn it. Son of... Damn it. God bless America. I'm gonna shoot somebody. I mean... That's one way to start a mass shooting. They're probably better lines. Hasta la vista, baby. Say hello to my little friend. I'll be back. <laughs> oh, that's dark. 
Ja. Og... Ja, du er dit jabbe. Ja, og... It's pretty good, Rambo. Come on. Sylvester Stallone, that took me a moment. <laughs>